0: Chapter 12 Sewell Group The 1990s heralded massive and unprecedented change at the Sewell Company, but surprisingly little turmoil. Obsessed and focused on business success as you may be, you do have to have a life outside it. The word recreation can be broken down to its true meaning of recreation, and with me, that came through music and family with football coming back into the picture after a period of disenchantment and disinterest in the game. Britpop had me interested in popular music again, with the Gallagher brothers and Oasis bringing the attitudinal, rebellious social commentary I needed. As did Gaza's genius and Tears, mixed with Lineker's goals as England reached the semi-finals of the World Cup for the first time since I was 14. Italian 90 introduced us to the cathedral-like stadiums such as the San Siro and Opera. Suddenly we could all mimic the last three words of Pavarotti's Nessun Dorma. Patrick had gone off to university and we built and moved into our hobby farm at Parklands in Cottingham. That first night, sleeping in a house where no streetlights or road traffic would interrupt the eerie silence and pure darkness was weird indeed. Dad would finally retire at 76 and die two years later. When people ask me what he died of, I say retirement. Humber Street Fruit Market had been his reason for being. He contracted type 2 diabetes and his doctor instructed him to go out walking, which is why residents would see him as a lonely stout figure slowly but surely pounding the streets of Cottingham. Whenever I spotted him, I would sound the horn of my car and he used to raise a hand vertically in the air in acknowledgement of nobody in particular. At the time mum died, Sue was sorting her out with the oxygen she needed to combat her emphysema, a complete reversal of the start of their relationship. In those final years, she and dad would visit Parkland's farm and talk endlessly to my ever-patient and forgiving wife. To my regret. An eternal discredit, So ended up having a much better relationship with them than I did. Their funerals within six months of each other led to the only ever reunions of the less-than-fab-four. Ronnie, Audrey, Joan and I were in the lead car of the cortege. I remember thinking as we edged our way to the crematorium that if we could stop the car at the pedestrian crossing on Northgate in Cottingham, The four of us could walk in line over it, and someone could take an unlikely picture based on that famous Beatles album cover. And in the end, as Paul McCartney sings at the conclusion of Abbey Road, the love you take is equal to the love you make. The problem with my family being that there just wasn't quite enough of it around. I am more prone to silly jokes and inappropriate humour at such times, so my parents' funeral was bound to suffer. Our Ronnie was worse, though, recounting irreverent stories about Dad and tender loving ones about Mum, which were indicative of where his affections lay. This contradicted the no longer lethal lethal and endorsed Sue's view as Mum quietly gasped on her deathbed, that Paul was always my favourite. Sue had no option other than to disagree and sensitively say, oh we know he's special, and indeed special needs, but he's never been your favourite, that always has been Ronnie. My older brother's untypically hysterical reaction when first seeing our dead mum suggested he felt the same way. I was now back in football and it was taking up much of my leisure time, but as a coach and manager rather than a player. It was in the mid-80s when I got the FA coaching badge out again to help a guy called Jim Milner, who had ill-advisedly taken on Patrick's Cottingham Rangers boys team. He got depressed at the early results and performances and I could understand him because they were awful. Their first away game was in deepest, darkest East Hull, and a convoy of supportive parents in their decent cars departed Cottingham in hope and expectation of their little darling's prospects. The playing field was large, open and windswept, a world away from the intimate tree-lined surroundings of King George V Park in Cottingham, with its copses overlooked by the village church tower. St Mary's Big Ben-style clock face with its gold Roman numerals, had watched over our green-clad Hallgate school team a generation earlier. Oh, that this lot were as talented and organised as Jackie Neal's champions back then. The pitch was way too big for boys of this age, but they lined up on it nevertheless. The Cottingham Rangers' touchline populated with middle-class, well-dressed parents ready to support and encourage their team. The Eastall boys' contingent consisted of two older men and one very old dog. The referee was looking around to confirm all was in order for him to start the game and everything fell silent in anticipation. This was broken by one young player's rallying cry as the big, ginger, freckled centre-half of his Hall bellowed, Come on lads, let's get stuck into these posh gets!" Welcome to Sunday League football, ladies and gentlemen, I said, turning to our supporters group, and welcome to East Hull. It didn't turn out to be much of a welcome, for they stuffed us, as did just about every other team in the first half of that maiden season. Jim fell on his sword in a Kevin Keegan esque way after every game, once berating his son with the legendary, You are now doing it just to annoy me, aren't you, Jefferson? Even the genteel, old-fashioned father, Ron Lowther, was moved to frustration with his son. Richard, you remind me of Glenoddle. The rest of the Touchlam fell into shocked silence at this uncharacteristic outburst. We held our collective breath in anticipation of what might follow. And he's a wanker, Ron finished. The rest of us nodded sagely in agreement. Us dads had some good fun on the touchline over those years, and those are times that I remember fondly. I was an observer only for the first half of that maiden season, before acceding to Jim's requests that I take over the coaching in the new year. I secured the sports hall at Cottingham High School for Friday evenings, and slowly disciplined and organised them into some sort of team. They all responded really well, showing great progress, and with some changes of personnel, we went from bottom of the 2nd Division to 3rd in the top division in the four years up to them turning 16. We also reached the cup final in that year, only to lose to two late goals to the best side in the area, a gargantuan achievement for those lovely, willing and decent kids. I'm sure that what we jointly learned on that journey prepared us well for the future, especially me. I was a better business leader and manager as a result of my involvement with those young people. Thanks lads, and remember, when we lose the ball, everybody gets behind it, with the nearest player to it charged with going and getting it back. I am sure the very young Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp heard this and were studying my methods from their respective far-off footballing lands. Patrick particularly improved from a just about adequate midfield player with a little skill and less pace, to being somebody you would have in your team to anchor the midfield, because he knew what was happening on a football pitch, and was most often in the right place at the right time. This manifested itself in an unlikely but deserved appearance for the Hull Boys Sunday League representative side against Nottinghamshire, albeit when there were a few first-choice absences. He and a little lad two years younger made their debuts in front of their proud parents. Patrick acquitted himself well, but the diminutive youngster was the star of the show, scoring four goals and looking destined for a big future in the game. Those of us on the touchline that day who gave that prognosis were proved to be right as Nick Bamby went on to play with distinction for Spurs, Liverpool, Everton, England and of course Hull City, who we also managed. There was also a half-decent kid with an eye for goal playing for Nottinghamshire. His name was Andy Cole, and he also did alright for Newcastle United, Manchester United, and England. When the team was timed out of boys football at age 16, there was a feeling amongst the majority of them that they would like to stick together and have a crack at men's football. I wasn't sure because I thought they would get eaten alive in the Men's Sunday League, but then one of those delicious coincidences happened that suggested something was meant to be. I was playing cricket for Cottingham Sports Club and heard at committee that the football section had run out of steam and was on the verge of wrapping up. This I considered to be a shame, for I had turned out for them periodically over the years and felt Cottingham needed a senior football team. There was a pitch, two sets of kits, funding and a place in the East Riding Amateur League that could provide an opportunity for the youngsters to stay together and the sports club to start afresh. It seemed like a win-win and all concerned went for it. Whilst I felt it would work organisationally, the coach in me knew we needed three or four experienced players to help the boys on the pitch. This heralded one of my poorer decisions In thinking that one of them should be me. At the age of 37, with seriously dodgy knees and without a proper game for five years, I decided on a Hollywood style comeback. I returned to serious training with images of Rocky Balboa in my head, which unfortunately couldn't get into my body. I put the miles in in running, even hitting the road on holiday in the heat of Palm Springs. I built up my strength with circuit training But it was twisting and turning and the more explosive stuff in a game that i would struggle with i persuaded my accountant from work brian humphreys to come in and play at the back and although he was a decent experienced player he was less fit than i was with body not quite doing what brain asked of it just like me he brought in another defender and the electrician who had coincidentally wired my new house phil tong who had played at a decent level locally but again, couldn't run anymore. He was marginally more mobile than Brian and I, but not much. Then we hit upon a wonderful player, who I would build the team around. Our young goalkeeper from bransholm the good-looking, dark-haired Darren Thornton, had an older brother called Lance, and he was good, if not as Bonnie. He was thin and fair, with wild eyes and sometimes a temperament to match. He'd had a more troubled upbringing than Darren and it showed in an insecurity and instability that had left him with his mates on the dole gambling away their gyro checks every Thursday on the horses. I played a few games with him and I knew he was quality straight away, as you do. He had a good first touch and then lifted his head to look around. He was always available for a pass. He could dribble, tackle, head a ball and should never have been playing at this low level. Sometimes he chose not to during the game itself, on occasion walking off the pitch, peeling his shirt off as he walked to the dressing room, mumbling about things that weren't anything to do with football. I knew he was a troubled young man, and later we would find out why. Thank God he was with us though, bringing a couple of his Jarrow mates with him in Roy Wickens and Andy Perchin. We were on our way, but so was I after getting injured at Ottringham in our fourth league game. Sue remarked that she could hear my cries of pain as she got out of the car by the side of the road, but it was just too late to see my exit from the game. My career deserved a better ending than on a village pitch in Division 6 of the Hull Amateur League, whilst whining like a baby. The emotional scars of those two bad injuries were a good excuse for the histrionics, but it was probably because I'm just a wimp. They say you should never come back, and they would be right. I knew I could no longer play, but I could coach, and that's what it was going to have to be, and I think that, as it turned out, I did it pretty well. In fact, in retrospect, and without the disillusioning lens of nostalgia, I probably turned out to be a better coach than I was a player. After consolidating in that first year, Cottingham Sports Club swept everything before them in our match up the leagues in the early 90s, winning the treble of league and challenge cups available to us in both junior and intermediate football, and arriving in senior football where the biggest village in England should be. Those spring evening games of league deciders, semi-finals and finals were always the highlight of the season with decent crowds and lots of pressure. For even at this level, winning meant a lot to those of us involved. And win we did, continually and habitually, always with celebrations afterwards at the nearest pub. You must celebrate the wins if you want to keep on winning. Teams that play together, stay together and all that. Players had come and gone because that's the way football is and my beloved Cottingham Rangers boys, including Patrick, had departed by the time we hit the senior division. I had been joined on the management team by former player Keith Denby, to add to my long-term associate, the irrepressible Martin Botham, and according to the Hull Daily Mail, I signed one of the 20 greatest players to come out of the Hull area. Peter Skipper had played over 600 league games including two spells with Hull City, before he retired and took a management trainee position with Bass Ailes so that he could eventually have his own pub. This classy centre-half with the sweetest left foot you ever did see commenced his training at the Railway Inn on Thwaite Street in Cottingham, and Arch Football Networker Martin had arranged for me to pop in and see him in the pub where I spent so much of my time partying as a youth. Blonde-haired Pete, of unassuming manner and thin, tight-lipped but friendly smile, was such a sweet guy. He never acted at all like a pro of 20 years' experience when talking to the manager of the local amateur club who had never played a professional league game. I shared my vision of him starting his career in coaching and management at this level before he moved on to the higher stuff, saying it would be convenient during his bus training and it would be free from scrutiny and its attendant pressure. We would see how it went, and he could succeed me in a coaching capacity when he felt the time was right. We got on, and he did seem interested, but the question that was always going to come then surfaced. What sort of money are we talking, Paul? Pete inquired. I hesitated, fearing he would not like the answer. It's £2 per game, Pete. You pay. That covers the cost of the referee, laundry, etc. I tried not to sound cheeky or flippant. He looked at me quizzically, but without apparent disappointment. Someone who had made his living at the game would now have to pay to play it, and this icon did just that, being the first to stump up in the dressing room and setting an example every week. Peter turned out not to be a leader or a coach, though, just a great player and a great person who was living proof that good players don't always make good managers, as we were to see later with the likes of Arsene Wenger and Jose Mourinho. You just have to be a student of the game and a student of people. I remain friends with Peter, mainly meeting him in his role of hospitality ambassador for Hull City Games at the KC Stadium, right up until his untimely death a few weeks before writing this. I was gutted. Rest in peace, Skip. We went on to win three league titles at the top level of amateur football in the East Riding, and even played Hull City in the semi-final of the East Riding Senior Cup, the same trophy that my two girls had won for Bridlington Town all those years ago. There was to be no fairy tale this time, however, for the Young Tigers side beat our weakened team easily. And then one day, I realised that I'd had enough and it was time to go. Enough of the midweek coaching sessions, putting the nets up, checking the pitch for dog shit and then taking the nets down again so I could transport the sweaty gear to the laundrette. I gave up, and despite fearing I would miss it, I never did. I never watched a park game again either. This next period of leisure in my life was all for me and my fitness and wellness. On my mountain bike, walking my dogs and training four times a week to become as fit as I possibly could be since giving up playing myself. I was not going to join the ensemble of dearly departed former teammates anytime soon. The thing that pleased me most of all about this period of running and managing football teams, both junior and senior, in hindsight, is what has happened in retrospect. Over the subsequent years, former players across the board have either sought me out or we bumped into each other accidentally with most remarking that our years together were their best times in football. We've shared fond memories and regretted how you never appreciate just how good it is at the time. Nostalgia is great because it concentrates on the good stuff and there is no better example of this than what happened when I made one of my silly public presentations of the Sewell story at Annelby Park Library in the late summer of 2019. I was concerned as always that nobody would show up, but was heartened when I saw some posters in the area around this quaint public facility, which is basically a cottage on the charming village green that time had forgotten in the suburbs of West Hull. My lovely PA, Joe Taylor, had got it all organised as usual and was present in support, even though she didn't have to be. I think she feels sorry for me and therefore has to be that one additional person to boost the attendance. I would tell her that I didn't care and that I had once gone all the way to York to speak at a Chartered Institute of Building Function where only three people had turned up. Of those three, however, one became a key client and another became a key partner, so it is definitely quality above quantity. The third one was Frank Markham, making the trip from Bubbeth near Selby. As Woody Allen says, 80% of success is showing up. On that beautiful summer evening, a dozen or so had surprisingly gathered, and I thought I recognised one of them with a smart young teenager at his side. At the end he brought his son up and introduced them both, or should I say reintroduced, for he was Lance Thornton, the saviour and protector of my boys all those years before. From those challenging beginnings on the Dole, living on the Brands Home Estate, he was now a senior postman with a lovely and talented family of his own. He was complimentary about the part I had played on that journey, believing in him and showing him that it was another way to live his life. He also said I was the best damn manager he'd ever had, football or wider. It was good that this came at the end of my presentation, for the lump in my throat would have hampered its progress. I will say again, as I'm apt to do, we all need somebody to believe in us as we search for what we are great at. Lance looked as if he was a great dad. Sport in general and football in particular has played a huge part in my life, but not just in the usual way of enjoying the game as a participant for its competition and camaraderie. It has informed my business philosophy too. I believe sport has much to teach business, and always has been way ahead in talent management, recruitment, psychology, performance management, etc. As a manager or coach, it is simple really. You just get the best players available in the building with the right blend of skills and experience and a cultural fit that makes them all pull together with high energy and a deep desire to win. It is easier and less risky to grow your own rather than import, but it takes patience and a longer-term strategy than some can tolerate. On the business front, it was all changed with the departure of Keith Lee, the final and long-awaited full retirement of Doug and the move out of Sutton Village to our own little industrial estate of Sutton Fields, accessed by a new road that we would call Geneva Way. We had discovered a hidden portion of land, a Mary celeste of a building site where the developer had obviously gone bust just as the roads were going in, leaving drainage unfinished and curbing still in progress. We made a silly offer for an unattractive, contaminated site with awkward and expensive access, and it had been accepted. So, we could cease leasing Doug's family property in Sutton and move to our own purpose-built offices on our own estate. We finished the access roads and constructed a beautiful cream brick building with simulated slate roof, timber window frames made in our joinery shop and a large arched stained glass window portraying our brick and trowel logo which had been the symbol of our success in the 80s for the boardroom. It was herald a new era and showcased our traditional tradesmanship and I think it did just that. Part of Doug's retirement package had been keeping him on the payroll to top up his remuneration to a level that was acceptable to him but all good things must come to an end and he'd had a really good run. The move out of Sutton to Geneva Way was as good a milestone as any to get him finally living off his pension, and to get all the shares back into the company. I am a firm believer that shareholders of a company like ours should work in the company, and sorting out this particular stone in my shoe was well overdue. We did have to pay though. The shares were valued, then we paid for a company that we had built up to that value, and Dennis paid for shares that would have been his by inheritance. That didn't seem right then, and it doesn't now, but it was finally ours and we owned the new Sewell Group 5050. F Sewell and Sun Hull Limited had become Sewell Construction and it now became the Sewell Group PLC. Jeff advised us that we met the criteria for such a grand title and we didn't argue. It was not, however, the greatest economic time for our new PLC to launch. The 1992 recession was caused by a worldwide downturn following the end of the Cold War. Restrictive monetary policy by the central banks, an oil price shock and a subsequent lack of confidence. Unemployment spiralled in the UK once more, causing civil unrest and the economy plunged into recession. What this meant for us was a lack of work as the building industry is always the first and hardest to be hit. The big boys come down to our markets so the pond gets smaller and the crocodiles get bigger. We reacted appropriately and downsized accordingly, going through the painful process of letting people go who we had signed up in the good times of growth and expansion. It is great growing a business when the job's on, as my dad used to say but you find out about yourself and your team when you need to battle adversity and setbacks. And we did battle through to the mid-90s, but by then, I have to say, I'd had enough. I'd had enough of lowest price, low quality, aggravating adversarial construction contracting, where customer abuse was rife and the only winners appeared to be the lawyers and the claims consultants. We had been a willing and winning participant in the 80s, but by now I thought there must be a better way to make a living. Hail our mini cultural revolution in the mid-90s. A shift in our core purpose, a brand new strategy, and different demands of our people. We had to get into proper customer care big style by creating raving fans. We had to build a broad multidisciplinary base, or Parthenon, as in the multi-columned Greek structure of different income streams to insulate us against the peaks and troughs. We had to get to the top of the food chain in our jungle as developers rather than being down the food chain as contractors. We had to get into niche markets where people know value above cost and away from commoditization, for that's where you make money and give true value. We would work for the public sector as partners, or with blue-chip companies at the top table to deliver Latham-Egan single-team solutions, partnering not contracting, looking for solutions, taking risks. But first, there was a brand new, uber-successful Sewell company of the future to form and get going, and it all started on a beach in Florida. The alluring Azure waters of the Gulf of Mexico have a 10-mile-long narrow strip of land set down just off the coast of Sarasota called Longboat Key. Pelicans glide low and effortlessly above the waves, watched from the ribbon of pure white sandy beach by long-legged egrets, a smattering of locals, tourists, and so and I, who almost feel like locals, so often have we returned to my favourite place in all the world to relax. The resort at Longboat Key Club, at the bottom end of the quay, ahead of the causeway to the wonderful Cosmopolitan St Armand's Circle, is always our base, with its world-class golf course and ocean-facing condominiums. It is September 1993, and we are halfway through our fortnight's stay, and well into our routine of buzzing about in the morning, and lazing on the beach waiting for the always stunning sunset. This day I've had enough of my latest biz book and go back to our room for a wee and to grab a bottle of water. Returning to the beach I have to stop at the side of the road leading to the condo car park to allow an impressive large white van to pass me and pull up by the boardwalk. I cannot help but read its livery which identifies its occupants as the club's facilities management services. A large, smiling, blonde, scruffy haired tan Floridian jumps out of the cab in front of me with the statutory, Hi, how you doing? I'm good, thanks, I reply in kind, but I'm wondering what a facilities management service looks like. Oh, that's easy, he says. The folks here are good at looking after you guys enjoying yourselves. We do most everything else to let them concentrate on you, he concludes, obviously pleased with his response. I like building maintenance and stuff, I offer. We have a building company back in the UK which does that. Well, it's a bit more than that, he says, madly indignant. We look after the grounds, the pests, anything wrong in your room, you name it. Anything that's not hospitality, we take care of it. Thank you, I'm impressed. I finish the conversation and head for the beach. Back home in the cool, leafy autumn at our new Geneva Way base, I am with the tenant of the ramshackle old units we'd inherited at the bottom fronting Lees Road. They were awful and should have been condemned years ago, but Sean Chatterton and his young cleaning and paper disposables CPD business was the opposite and pretty opposite to me. A smooth, posh accent belied his whole roots. Immaculately dressed in modern, trendy business attire, he had a nous for marketing and promoting his growing company and was a salesman in the classic mould. I had much to learn from him and learn I did. I was struggling in my new business development role and thought he was a good guy to study for help, as indeed he was. Particularly with our mission, to become an accredited investor in people, which his small team had beaten us to earlier that year. The difference between us was that Sean wanted the plaque to promote and differentiate his business and I wanted to actually invest properly in all of our people. I would observe this difference in motivation universally 15 years later as a Sunday Times 100 best companies to work for employer. Sean was in his beautifully furnished office, with our leaking prefabricated building falling down around him, teaching me how to tie the knot on an expensive tie properly, when he got around to talking business. He was grumbling about the threat of the growing practice of his blue-chip clients of outsourcing their non-core services to a new breed of facilities management companies, which were giving him a hard time both on quality and price. Now there's one big coincidence I proffered, telling him of my experience at Longboat Key Club. We agreed to jointly look at forming one of these entities, with us doing the building maintenance or hard services, and CPD looking at the soft services of cleaning, security, etc. The Facilities Management Partnership, or FMP Group, was thus born, and Sean went into marketing and promotional overdrive. A beautiful creative glossy brochure to match our brick and trowel work of art showcased a frustrated businessman sitting at his chaotic desk not being able to get on with his day job because of the cares and worries of his physical estate. It presented a lovely glossy plastic credit card type symbol of membership which accessed round-the-clock facilities management services and a new world of single sourced, outsourced non-core services. It was launched at a swanky black-tie casino evening at my new Parklands home in Cottingham, with the great and good of local business, and Steve Parnaby in jeans and t-shirt because he did not read the invitation properly, a rare lapse for our fastidious leader of the council, which I'm sure he remembers to this day. The whole thing was very shown. With Jeff Gordon's Get Work, Do Work, Get Paid echoing in my head, I realised that if Sean was going to take care of the critical first phase, then I would have to get cracking on the other two, and I appointed a lovely lad called Steve Farrow to be our first and only employee of FMP Group. Steve was a thin, fragile-looking, frizzy-haired, gentle soul, with glasses and a wicked sense of humour. He was an anorak of a chartered builder from a site engineering background just like me, who had come into the team as a projects manager at the height of our construction contracting boom. With the downturn of work in the early 90s recession, he was available, and I thought he had the interpersonal skills and technical knowledge to become our first facilities manager. He's just delivering a bundle of subcontract services just as you've been doing on site, but on completed buildings with their inhabitants in situ, I explained, when persuading him to give the job a go. There is a Steve Farrow story that has entered Sewell folklore in the same way as half a lettuce, and as such deserves recounting and recording here. Steve was working for us on a refurbishment contract for North British Housing Association on the then notorious Bransome estate. One of his duties being an initial house visit to agree specifications for such things as kitchen colours with the tenants. This particular house had a scruffy, unkempt front garden, no gate, and an Alsatian dog sniffing around the rubbish, which included a shopping trolley. Steve rang the doorbell, but it didn't work, so he gently knocked on the glass-panel door with some trepidation. This was not unfounded, for a woman, still in her nightdress, opened the door to let both him and the dog into her front room, which resembled the garden in its tidiness. Steve accepted a seat on the settee, declined a drink, and worried what else might be on offer as the lady came and sat next to him rather than on the chair opposite. Undaunted, he went into his technical patter from the checklist on his clipboard, with his customer looking at him with the utmost attention, answering his questions with surprising aplomb. Then they simultaneously noticed the dog at the other side of the room in a slow, ritualistic dance before it evacuated its bowels in the corner, the product being impressive and unbelievably smelly. Nothing was said, and the interview continued as if nothing had happened, except Steve was feeling nauseous and so needed to conclude and get out of there as quickly as possible. Ever the gentleman, he said nothing of the incident until he was opening the front door for a welcome exit and inquired as to whether she wanted him to let her dog back out into the garden. My dog, the tenant exclaimed in surprise, I thought it was your dog. The FMP club card to access our services was a disaster, but Sean's contacts did get us a prestigious contract looking after BP Chemical's off-site facilities and a place on the front page of the business mail arranged by our PR guru at whose feet I was learning much about this new world. My relationship with the MD of the Hull Daily Mail got us a shot at looking after their new state-of-the-art premises on Blundell's Corner in Hull, and Steve worked well with a lovely guy called Bill Walker to do a really good job and produce a great, much-needed case study. I did muse on the fact that for all of the great PR, our key contracts had come from existing relationships. As time went on it became obvious that prospective customers were more interested in the hard services of building maintenance rather than the softer services of cleaning and hospitality. This led to Sean losing interest, becoming overcritical of Steve, which brought out my protective streak, and splitting from the partnership whereupon we assumed the outstanding business and liabilities including Sean's shares. The FMP group became Sewell Facilities Management, or Sewell FM as it was appropriately known, for at the time I was bidding for a new local radio franchise on offer from Ofcom with the founder of Classic FM in London. I lost out to what became KCFM, who sold it on when they promised that they wouldn't. I was going to have a Sewell FM one way or another. Sean went on to sell his successful CPD business. Sometimes I feel that being in things for the distance makes me like an endangered species in the world of build it to grow and flip. Then I think of some of the great meatless businesses around here like J.R. Ricks, Arco, Jackson's etc and I know that's not quite right. Sewell FM came into its own with the advent of Victoria Duck Primary School in 1999 and it enabled us to keep all the key ingredients of that deal in-house and therefore friction-free. It then went on to do the same at our PFI schools in York and then on to the iconic Hull NHS lift programme with its 13 health centres of national repute. It has now celebrated its 25th birthday as Sewell Group's fastest-growing and most successful company, and I recently set up a video link at the anniversary party to mark the day with one Steve Farrow, who, after defeating cancer, is now working on a major infrastructure project in Mauritius. Seeing all the dozens of young people currently working in this now multi-million pound net profit business, waving at the camera, shouting, Thanks, Uncle Steve! after listening to more of his silly, unfunny stories of those days, delighted me more than any financial or commercial success. One of those young people was managing director Martin Stead, who was risen through the ranks from entry level to stewarding the outrageous success of today. Martin was a quiet but talented youngster, who did his 10,000 hours as a quantity of in Sewell Construction before going off to see the world and other companies and coming back home to grab the opportunity that lay in wait for him. His apparent reserve masks a feisty intellect and a fun demeanour that has proved to be perfect for Sewell FM and he is now growing a new generation of talent in his image. Rob Corkwell, the recently appointed new Managing Director of Sewell Construction, is another great homegrown talent who has done each and every job in the business with distinction and an awesome work ethic. He properly deserved the chance to lead and succeed the recently retired iconic MD that is Steve Gibson. That, that I heard Steve and his colleagues across the group speak assuredly of Rob as their first pick in the industry playground is testimony to what a great team we have. Add Patrick at Sewell on the go to that homegrown leadership mix and you can see why we have such a wonderful, enviable company culture and home for talent where real talent wants to be, as evidenced by the recent Insights report of the Social Mobility Pledge. The team following and pushing these guys is just as awesome and it is like a successful football academy to me, far beyond that early version I was in all those years ago at Hull City. The youngest of sewer group companies and another with huge potential is one whose beginnings can be traced back to when I sat on the board of the urban regeneration company called Hull City Build. We would receive the customary presentation of one of our work streams, such as the new master plan for the city, but on this particular occasion I don't recall the subject matter, only the presenter, a young economist on the staff called Joanne Barnes. The material she was presenting was instantly forgettable, but the confident and authoritative way it was put over was not, and I followed her progress right through to her becoming Economic Development Director of Hull Forward, the successor of Hull City Build. I remember her making another presentation on the Economic Landscape and Opportunity in Hull at the NHS Lift Bidders Day in 2003 and if I'd have had the chance to build our new lift company around her, I would have done. Unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, I had to wait another five years and six health centres before I could lure her to come and take over at City Care. The company was good under the stewardship of a grumpy old quantity air from Harrogate called John Hall, but it needed to be taken to great, and I was getting grumpy, about his unwillingness and inability to make it so. John and I progressively fell out to the point where one of us had to go, and our fantastic independent chair Charles Lewis expertly and graciously facilitated his exit, whilst I facilitated the entrance of a signing of huge import and impact. Joe Barnes was a good civil servant, whom we immediately nicknamed Poppins. For her perchance for having everything so right and proper my ambition was to release the entrepreneur within her via a stepping stone into the private sector that was the public-private partnership that is CityCare. she immediately made the difference i had expected through improved relationships enhanced brand and a smoother quicker route to financial close of what would be 13 high quality health centers rather than the eight originally envisaged by the NHS Strategic Service Development Plan. With the end of the program in sight, I knew we would have trouble keeping hold of our talent, particularly Jo herself, if we did not do something radical. The radical child of our brainstorm was called Shared Agenda Solutions, which would remain partly owned by the NHS. But with Jo herself giving me my first taste of the employee share ownership I craved, and that I knew would be good for all concerned. Critically, unlike CityCare, this could work outside Hull and bring the CityCare magic to other areas denied lift status and services by OJU procurement rules. So, the same team would look after CityCare for its shareholders and investors using a management services agreement expertly created and implemented by Jo herself and Chair Charles Lewis. Shared Agenda is now another proud member of the Sewell Group of Companies with its own fantastic offices in Willoughby, close to the A63 and the Humber Bridge, growing fast by doing exactly what it says on the tin and bringing innovative strategic solutions to its public sector customers. It is also able to put investment and building our facilities management action behind its advice via the Sewell Group supply chain. Watch this space with this company as I look forward to watching it and its people fly. For me, the cherry on the top of this wonderful business cake was when my friend Alan Johnson agreed to succeed Charles Lewis as independent chair of CityCare and to be the first chair of shared agenda when he retired as an MP in 2017. Alan has been my main inspiration, coach and advisor in writing this book, And I get to work with not only a friend, but one of my heroes. Thanks for exercising the ghost of Ken Wagstaff, Alan.